Hey there. Thanks for stopping by. My name is Josh. You're at Dharma Punks, New York. And as a Buddhist pastor, I'm supported entirely by donations. So if you'd like to support my work, it's Venmo Dharma Punks with an X NYC. PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks with an X NYC website and the podcast site. And tonight, attachment theory, what is it? Well, it was developed by John Bowlby. And Bowlby started out his career as a Freudian psychoanalyst, but he was also a very independent thinker who upended classical Freudian drive theory, noting that the core drive of the human being was not in, as Freud proposed, to discharge libidinal desire, but rather to attach to uh, other people for support, protection, and care. And that's pretty, uh, it was always a tough ask to go with the strictly Freudian account that the infants bond with the caregivers to discharge libidinal drives. Uh, much easier to see that the baby simply is born prematurely. And like all mammals, we are very vulnerable when we're born. So we desperately attach to caregivers trying to find protection because we're not capable of surviving on our own. So uh, Bowlby was a clinical researcher and worked with children, especially orphans during the tail end of World War II. He did a lot of research and he started to see the significant disruptions that happen in the child's emotional development in the aftermath of separation from caregivers. Bowlby with his colleague, Mary Ainsworth, enormously important figure in uh, contemporary and uh, 20th century psychology. Uh, Mary Ainsworth and Bowlby noted with far greater detail than any of the, the Freudians and the post-Freudian object relation school, they noted in detail how the patterns of connection between the, pattern, the parent and the child uh, creates enduring patterns that influence how the child will attach and engage with others in adult life. In other words, children who have a secure bond with their caregivers grow up to be secure adults who are capable of generally, not all the time, but are generally capable of cementing enduring relationships. Whereas uh, children that had compromised, difficult, or unreliable bonds with caregivers uh, very often grow up to be adults that struggle in adult romantic relationships and sometimes even friendships. So today, attachment theory is one of the most clinically validated insights into human behavior. Um, it's studied by famous neuropsychologists, ranging from the head of the American Psychiatric Association, I believe, Alan Shore, um, enormously influential figures like Dan Siegel, uh, Philip Shaver, um, 
uh, Mario McCulincer, Omri Gilead, Mary Maine, and so forth. And so uh, there really isn't today important therapeutic modalities that don't integrate attachment theory into their core principles. It doesn't matter whether you're uh, working with somebody or if you are a uh, somatic therapist or a cognitive therapist or a gestalt therapist or a psychodynamic therapist, you will be integrating some of the core insights of attachment theory into the protocol that determines how you work with people that you meet with. So uh, attachment theory has also provided us with the only reliable classification of human personality types. You might have heard of varying different uh, personality classification types, Myers-Briggs and um, others, but none of them, when you put them through rigorous testing, actually show consistent results. In fact, they're generally clinically disregarded, but attachment theories developed uh, the four classifications of how we attach, and those, those classifications have been rigorously clinically um, investigated and the ways that people discern people's attachment styles as it are as it were have been studied and have been shown to be consistent and reliable so um i would go as far to propose that it's impossible to understand issues in adult relationships without grasping one the early childhood dynamics or the, in, the influence of uh, one's family system on one's adult life, and two, uh, what, to understand human adult behavior, we have to become familiar with attachment theory. So um, there's two ways you, or two periods of life where people uh, discern or where their attachment, their primary attachment style is can be tested and in childhood there was a process or a um, procedure developed by mary ainsworth called the strange situation and in it the baby or infant about a year and a half of age is brought in by by the mother or father into uh, a room, eventually a stranger who happens to be a therapist comes in, and then the parent leaves the room, leaving the infant with the, the stranger who's a therapist. And the therapist observes how the child responds to the parents going away, and then how the child responds when the parent returns. So um, there's it's very clear the distinction between how a secure baby will respond, where the secure baby will become uh, upset for a little while, but then turn to the caregiver. And when the parent returns, the, the child will uh, gleefully see the parent and once again, seek proximity with the parent. Uh, the child becomes soothed by the stranger after initially showing 
distress. The anxious child, on the other hand, who's uh, when the parent leaves becomes inconsolable, doesn't uh, seek help from or doesn't connect very well with the therapist in the room. And when the parent returns, the child, while seeking the parent out, still cries and is still upset. The child doesn't believe that a secure caregiver that's reliable has returned. So, and we see that in anxious adults who become fixated on primary attachment figures, but never feel truly safe in relationships. The dismissive or avoidant child, um, when the parent leaves, that child doesn't really pay attention, isn't, doesn't become inconsolable, will very often seek toys in the room, be, is uh, auto-regulating, that means doesn't seek out the, the therapist for uh, soothing or support. And when the parent returns, the child doesn't even really respond that much again. The child has, in essence, even as early as a year and a half, has kind of begun the process of giving up on the parent for reliable emotional um, interaction. And then there's finally the child that is overwhelmed or scared of the caregiver, and that child will tend to hide or freeze in place and not take an action. So then put that aside, there's just know that there's four types of attachment and they're discernible in, in infants as early as a year and a half. And now let's jump to adult life. Um, uh, there was developed by Mary Main, a very, very important figure in attachment theory, the adult attachment interview. And it's a series of roughly 20 questions that adults are asked. And it takes about 45 minutes to do the test to an hour. And the 20 questions are things like name five words for each of your parents and then why you chose those five words. Who did you feel closest to? What would you do when you were upset as a child? Did you feel uh, judged or abandoned? And you know, if you had children, what would you want for them? Stuff like that. So um, here's the thing. They've done what's called longitudinal studies. Longitudinal studies are you first look at the, the attachment result of the infant. And then many years later, decades later, you find the exact same people and you give them the adult attachment interview. And here's the stunning thing you'll find, which is between 75 and 85% of the time, the grown-up adult will have the exact same attachment style as they did when they were a year and a half of age. I'll say that again. There's a 75 to 85% chance that we each of us will have the exact same patterns of attachment in our adult life that we had in infancy with our earliest caregivers. Now that doesn't mean that we are stuck. It is possible to address attachment patterns when they are insecure, when we are 
attaching to the wrong people for love or when we are constantly running away from uh, people who are secure whether we shut down in relationships whether we become overly emotional and anticipate abandonment so on and so forth there are ways to address attachment uh, patterns and but uh, they're very sticky they were uh, as we will see um, there's reasons why they're very it's very 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 slow difficult work to change the way we attach and how we act in relationships especially romantic or vulnerable relationships so the four categories are secure uh infants and adults who have a secure base starting in childhood uh they feel confident to explore the world around them uh they establish bonds well they are capable of stating their needs because in childhood they got their needs met and uh their parents when they were young were responsive to their child's needs for connection and research indicates that these are children that will grow up to be secure adults who uh, reach their intellectual and creative potential they're capable of lasting relationships. They regulate their emotions well. They even have uh, some studies indicate smaller amygdalas, which means they're less likely to be triggered, less likely to be overly reactive in stressful situations. And they balance left and right hemispheres well, the intellectual, logical, schematic side with the associative emotional intuitive uh processes of the brain and by all accounts depending on where you are the um the amount of secure people vary in the united states supposedly it's 50 percent secure and i always joke here so here's the insert the normal joke which is i never meet these people because i work as a uh, counselor and so so many of the people i've worked with uh, over the years just come from insecure attachment schemas early on but yes they are out there and uh <coughs> as we could even call them normies so there are 50 percent are are the normies and uh but let's talk about the other 50 percent um 20 a little over 20 percent are avoidant in childhood and dismissive as adults they're the same category dismissive is just what you call the uh you know avoidant is the terminology for the child dismissive in adult life it's strange that they have different labels for the exact same tendencies but they do um so uh the uh avoidant slash dismissive individual tends to auto regulate when they're under stress when they feel frustrated disappointment they tend to go off on their own and process their feelings without seeking or relying too much on one person they um, tend to be very left hemisphere dominant in relationships which means 
overly logical, not very emotional. They tend to set overly excessive boundaries to keep themselves safe. They tend to seek distance. Um, they're, they keep their emotions very, uh, they're very capable of subcortical blocking, meaning they can block awareness of their affects very well. They tend to be remote, uh, controlling, and in adults, they have tendencies of depressive disorders because in this early tendency to not rely on other people, to auto-regulate, to uh, try to be extremely logical and ward off feelings, especially in human bonding situations, they can empty themselves out of the very vital emotions that keep us invested in the world with others. So they set themselves up for depressive disorders. Now, roughly the same amount of individuals will wind up with primarily anxious or uh, preoccupied in adult life. It's called preoccupied. Um, sometimes the anxious babies are called, or infants are called ambivalent as well. So if you hear the term ambivalent, it means anxious and it means the same thing as preoccupied. So these uh, individuals are in many ways the exact opposite of dismissive in that the way they handled the unreliable attachment with caregivers is they became uh, hypervigilant, uh, constantly on guard for abandonment. They don't tend to explore uh, as, as often as secure, or even this avoidant babies. They tend to stick as close as possible to their caregiver. They, unlike dismissive people are overly right hemispheric. They tend to try to solve their interpersonal needs through ramping up emotions. So just as um, the extreme version of avoidance, uh, uh, dismissive attachment turns into narcissism, the extreme version of anxious ambivalent can turn into borderline personality disorders. Um, the anxious individual who has, has, is a prone to hypervigilance, expecting abandonment, will very often attach to, a, to others who are abandoning because unfortunately, the type of caregivers we had in childhood leave lasting imprints and we tend to return until we do a lot of work to the same type of individuals who recreate the same experiences. You would think that if we had emotionally distant, engulfing uh, or uh, parents with disorders or addictive tendencies that we would not want to wind up with care, with uh, attachment figures who had the exact same issues. And you would be wrong <laughs> because essentially the early experiences define what love is. And the right hemisphere of the brain, which stores attachment patterns in the right orbital frontal, always goes to what's familiar. The brain prefers the familiar, even if the familiar is toxic, because uh, there's nothing more. Uh, uh, 
the right hemisphere does not respond very well to going into situations that it has not experienced before. So even if we say grew up with uh, a emotionally distant, unempathetic caregiver, you would think that we wouldn't want any more of that in our adult life, but no, that's defined very often what love is for us. So unconsciously we'll gravitate towards and get excited by people who create the same, who have the same tendencies. Um, so lastly, roughly 5% of the world is disorganized, which are children who were frightened or overwhelmed by their caregivers and had a tendency to dissociate, freeze, hide, um, emotionally shut down. And these individuals in adult life um, have a lot of developmental challenges. They very often um, will struggle not only in establishing secure careers. They will have a predilection towards uh, substance dependence or other forms of addiction. There's a, a high predilection towards cutting and self-harm behaviors. And basically uh, opiates very often is the drug of choice because it recreates the dissociation, the checking out that the disorganized child uh, relied on to survive their overwhelming, painful, frightening, or abusive environments. Now, don't try to, from this very, very quick summary, try to figure out what attachment style you fall into. One, because it requires a test and uh, it can't be done by just hearing a, uh, a basic overview. Two, Adults very often have two different attachment styles. For example, on my mother's side, I have a very secure attachment style, but with my dad, who was a violent alcoholic, who at times was friendly, but at other times wasn't, I had a slightly disorganized um, or mixed with dismissive attachment style. So I have two completely different attachment styles, and that's not unusual. People can have one caregiver who was <coughs> reliable. And so, for example, if a, a young woman who identifies as straight and grows up to be heterosexual, but in early life, her father was emotionally unavailable, constantly working, not home, but her mother was soothing. She might grow up to be an adult who has very secure relationships with women, but might uh, consecutively date men who are not available, who prioritize anything but them. So they will recreate the dynamics of childhood. Um, so attachment styles or the what we should call the internal working models or schemas or patterns or expectations we hold of others. There's tons of different words that clinicians use, the most common being internal working models and schemas. These are not one held in conscious regions of the brain. You can't 
consciously change your attachment style. It requires a much more roundabout process, um, but it's stored in the right orbital frontal. It uses circuits that involve right temporal lobe, right amygdala, and so forth. These are regions that don't respond to logic or language. These are experiential regions of the brain. So the only way we change insecure attachment patterns to secure attachment or earn secure is by giving ourselves secure experiences over and over and over again. Unfortunately, the right hemisphere is largely uh, wired in the first two years of life. And it's the right hemisphere, our emotional brains, that govern how we act in intimate relationships with others. It's very, very slow, painful work to change the implicit memories or implicit behavioral uh, beliefs of the right hemisphere and the midbrain. It takes a very, very long time. Um, and we'll talk about the various ways that you can, that one can address their attachment style. And we'll also talk about the length of time one might expect for each process to be effective, but we're talking years and years, not months. And anyone who's ever worked on their attachment predilections or predispositions will attest to this, that it's very slow, gradual work. Interestingly, I was once mentioning this to a very famous Buddhist nun, Ajahn Sundara, who was what, is a wonderful, wonderful teacher at a Buddhist teacher conference. This was about 10 years ago, and I was talking about my interest in attachment theory. And um, I mentioned uh, uh, how slow going changing attachment styles uh, is, and she, not, she nodded and she said, yes, in her experience, um, the events of childhood are like, uh, essentially, uh, can be like each day a child is given a certain amount of emotional baggage or garbage, and we don't know how to process it, we don't know what to do with it, so we just put it in our backyard. And by the time we're adults, we wind up with this mountain of toxic sludge in our backyard, that's our unconscious. And the only way we can get rid of this mountain of toxic sludge is the same way we created it, which is slowly, day by day, connecting securely with others. We take just a little bit and we walk into the you know, garbage pan and we, we, put, we process it the right way. But it takes as long, easily as long, if not longer, than the duration of the childhood events to undo sometimes the adult uh, unconscious beliefs and patterns that guide us in the wrong direction. Interestingly, I would also like to note before we talk about the solutions that the Buddha and the Abhidhamma, uh, the commentaries, notes similarly to attachment style that there's four types of um, of, of adults, and the descriptions that are given of each are eerily similar 
to the four attachment styles of attachment theory. There's in the teaching, there's secure, confident people. There's people that are constantly craving and needing more and are never secure. There are people who are just want to get rid of or be off on their own and are dismissive and, and are aversive towards uh, others. And then there's people, he said, who are essentially what we would now call disorganized. Originally, they were called people who were delusional, lost in dissociative realms of, of fears and uh, fantasies and so forth. So <clears throat> it's not without um, by any means exaggeration that these insights uh, were not just solely those of late 20th century post-Freudian psychoanalysts and clinicians. It actually, there was insights in the Dharma that point in the same direction. So let's talk about if you have insecure attachment, which means you're you can drift from or are in many ways at times in relationships. Uh, anxious, insecure, ten, prone to preoccupation, rumination, um, always choosing people that are emotionally unavailable or unreliable, or if you're dismissive, where you feel constantly engulfed, claustrophobic, and needing to seek distance, or if you gravitate between the two, um, uh, or if you're disorganized and are profoundly uh, choose partners who are frightening or who uh, are abusive and so forth. So damaged internal working models or patterns can be changed via experience. And the first most important way is to make sure that we change the nature of our adult relationships and choose a secure partner. All of the other tools will essentially not work if somebody is choosing a partner who is emotionally unreliable. All that will do, no matter how much work you do on yourself, if you choose a partner who is not emotionally available, who's not capable of listening when you need to disclose your internal states, is in is in some way prone to uh, fast judgment or is uh, especially if you choose someone who's avoidant. Uh, in my experience, working as counselor and pastor, if you choose an emotionally avoidant, dismissive partner, and you are anxious or uh, disorganized, you will certainly not get any better, no matter how many other tools you uh, use. So um, for anxious people, choosing a secure partner means overcoming boredom. If they choose a secure partner, they will not have all the fireworks and excitement that they get when they meet someone who's emotionally unavailable. When they meet someone who's secure and wants to be with them, the reliability, the fact that the person will show up when they say they're going to show up, will be interpreted as, but where's the magic? And it doesn't mean that 
the magic isn't there. It simply means that the avoidant, emotionally uh, distant or unreliable partner recreates the childhood dynamic, and that activates a flood of, at first, uh, oxytocin, noradrenaline, norepinephrine, dopamine, uh, it's a heady cocktail that makes us feel electric and excited. And then all of those neuromodulators crash about two to three months later. And then you're now pining for someone who's not really available or soothing. For the avoidant, choosing a secure partner means overcoming their quick feelings of engulfment and their desire to get away and seek distance whenever something stressful happens. It means they also have to develop tolerance of other people's emotions. Dismissive avoidant people found their parents or caregivers to be, to be too emotionally uh, anxious or overwhelmed, and they just wanted to get away. As children, when they grew up into adolescence, they just wanted to get distance. And as adults, they're great. They can love bomb at the beginning of a relationship, but the moment things get difficult, they just want to distance themselves. And so the avoidant who or dismissive has to learn how to put up with the feelings of engulfment that will certainly arise when they're with someone who's secure. For the disorganized individual, they'll have to develop self-soothing tools because their autonomic nervous system is so chaotic that in relationships, they're constantly feeling fight, flight, freeze impulses. They are constantly having urges to run. They uh, it's important that they develop emotion regulation processes. So that's the key. The first fundamental of healing and attachment style is to choose a secure partner if you're going to be in relationships. If not, choose secure, reliably available, empathetic uh, caregivers. You want individuals that have the four characteristics of secure, which are someone who's available, reliable, someone who's emotionally understanding, they get what you're feeling, someone who is soothing when you're upset, and someone who's appreciative when you develop a new skill or try something new. Those four key characteristics of attachment we need from cradle to grave, that we need them as infants, and we need them as adults. So again, we need pro reliable proximity and attention, emotional understanding, soothing, and uh, appreciation. Someone who expresses delight when we show up and when they see us. So um, in the absence of a secure partner, um, find either a therapist, a mentor, a sponsor, or a close circle of friends. The Buddha recommended Kalyanamita, which is wise spiritual practitioners. Just find people who are who can give you the secure experience. 
And uh, in getting the secure experience, your right hemisphere, the right orbital frontal will slowly begin to understand that you don't need to rely on these ancient survival strategies stemming from childhood, that you can begin to be confident and be state your internal experience. Anxious people will learn that they can state their needs. Most anxious people don't want to state their needs because their needs weren't met in childhood. Most avoidant people will not want to listen to other people's needs, and they'll be able to do that if they wind up with either a good therapist, a good mentor, a good sponsor, or a good wise uh, circle of support. Three is it's very helpful to uh, make sense of our lives, our attachment history in an accurate way. Studies show that people who can uh, easily, without too much difficulty, summarize their lived experience, including their childhoods, uh, in an intelligible, logical way, understanding why their parents did the things they did uh, and the effect that the early child giving experience, what it had on them. Those are people who have greater capabilities or capacities to become secure. Uh, interestingly, when secure people are asked to describe their lives, they naturally create an easy to follow narrative where they understand what, how their parents ticked and, and they, they can discern how those experiences influence their adult choices. When anxious people tell their life story, you, it's, a, it's very often uh, fixated on one person. There's a lot of emotions. Uh, times, times will jump back and forward, but there's a real difficulty in understanding also why one of their caregivers acted in the way they did. Dismissive people will not really tell a story. They'll just basically say, we had a roof overhead. Why are you asking? They just don't want to go there. They want to keep all of their emotional experiences at, you know, out of the room. So if you ask a dismissive person to talk about their life, they'll say, well, I don't know why you're asking. I had, you know, there was, there were, uh, there was a roof over my head. There was, uh, 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 we had food on the table. What more could you ask? Well, you could ask a lot more, frankly. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, when you look at the adult attachment interviews, when dismissive individuals um, are asked to give five example, five words to describe their caregivers, they'll choose very benign words, but then when you ask them to give examples of why they chose those five words, oh my God, they'll give these horrible stories that will no way line up with the words they chose. So the classic dismissive would say, um, oh, you know, my dad was there. Uh, he was, you know, present. And they'd say, okay, so can you give me an example? And then they'll say, well, yeah, whenever I wanted to talk to him, his door would be shut and he'd tell me to go away. <laughs> How was that present? But anyway, 
so there's a discordance between their what they experienced and what they're willing to acknowledge and disorganized people will not be able to come up with a coherent story at all before you know it they'll be talking about things that are just totally unrelated to anything in their life they'll be all over the place and it'll be very difficult to piece together what their you know what their experience was there will be sometimes very overly painful dramatic horrible events that'll just be mingled in with minutia of the present day so um Another thing that we're not really going to talk about in any depth is uh, metacognitive monitoring, which means being able to detach from your thoughts and observe your thoughts as not an accurate or objective representation of the world around you. The more secure individuals are, the more they actually have the ability to um, to understand the subjectivity of their beliefs and to step outside of their beliefs, question them. They have, they're far more capable of understanding that coming up with a reasonable process of the world and lived experience requires collaboration with others. So it, these are, that's just worth knowing. Um, but there are two really strong final tools that really are helpful that are predominantly Buddhist in nature. The work of Brown and Elliot and others have shown that the right brain, which holds our attachment beliefs or patterns, is very, very susceptible to the influence of visualization. So uh, Dan Brown, for example, works with the ideal parent protocol where people will visualize themselves in childhood and visualize what the ideal parent would have been like and really create that experience so that they can create a new model of secure attachment in them. Also, uh, another protocol that's very similar is to visualize the ideal partner protocol, which means visualize yourself in the future in a secure relationship with a partner who's present, is not engulfing, but not too distant, is and gives you all of the four categories of attachment, which is they're available if you need them, they understand what you're feeling, they're soothing when you're in distress, and they appreciate and delight in, in you as a human being. In early Buddhism, the Buddha talked so many times about the importance of visualizing secure individuals, not just in the practice of Buddha Nusati, visualizing Buddha-like figures. He wasn't talking necessarily about himself, but any uh, wise, kind, secure individual. So you're creating internally the experience of security. But he also talked about Deva Nusati, visualizing angelic figures who are, have been there throughout your life, protecting you, looking over you, want you to be safe. So in very core visualization practices, the Buddha addresses insecure attachment. And a lot of early Buddhists were very insecure. Um, 
there were countless times where they would be terrified of going off into the woods. They were sure there was tree demons and ghosts everywhere. And so a lot of Buddhist practices were based on visualizations to create and, and downregulate people's autonomic nervous systems. And other uh, tools of Buddhism uh, help regulate one's autonomic nervous system as well. The, um, especially for individuals who are anxious or disorganized and prone to um, uh, drug abuse, um, whose nervous systems due to the events of early uh, relationships tend to be hyper-reactive. Um, tools that allow us to regulate our affect like breathing exercises, embodied awareness, what's called kaya nusati, um, awareness of how we can use different practices of in meditation, including nimittas, images outside of secure individuals and places and stuff like that can actually help tone our emotional responses to adverse stimuli so that we are not triggered into fight flight responses associated with anxious attachment or the disorgan the, the disorganized shutdown dissociation the more you can regulate your autonomic nervous system through self-soothing strategies when others aren't available the more you'll be able then to become and uh and deepen the relationships you have with others when we have attachment difficulties we have a tendency to run from partnerships or we have a tendency to ruminate excessively and both rumination i excessively thinking about an attachment experience or the tendency to run and flee are signs that our autonomic nervous systems are still hyper reactive to stimuli and so the tools of buddhism are of course very helpful there so now what we're going to do is we're going to do a couple of one self-soothing buddhist practices in our meditation and two we're also going to do one of the visualization practices to address um, these uh, insecure attachment patterns and i did say i i did promise that i would say the amount of time you can expect to change attachment patterns well if you simply do therapy alone without winding finding a secure partner without doing any of the other tools including visualization self-soothing and uh, the other strategies of metacognition and so on and so forth and you don't do therapy well if you do therapy alone it'll probably be between 10 and 15 years but if you found in this in the same time a secure partner you did secure visualization practices you uh did self-soothing strategies it might be as little as three years if you don't find a secure partner but you have and you rely on secure individuals around you you find a good therapist you do the other processes five to seven years 
So anyway, uh, thank you for listening. And now we're going to do some uh, meditative strategies to address attachment disorders. So um, find a really comfortable seated position. Uh, or you can lie down if you want. And uh, closing your eyes as we'll be doing visualization practices. This, not the meditation to do open eye. And just allow yourself to stretch and roll your shoulders and squinch the muscles in your face, anything to activate and then release. If you can pull your shoulders back and down to open up your chest and leave a lot of nice room for the breath. And as you bring your attention into the body, and allow your attention to move down into the sensations of your body. Try to find sensations that are soothing and grounding that feel really pleasant. In the Buddha's jhanas, the first step is to find an anchor for our attention that is very soothing. For some, it could be the breathing into the belly or the chest or the nose. But for others, it could be sensations in the eyes. I like that. <clears throat> or also, it could be the palms of the hands, the soles of the feet. It could be anywhere in your body that the sensations don't feel at all uncomfortable, that feel welcoming to your attention. And all we're going to do as we breathe in is we're going to become aware of that quality of ease wherever it is and we're going to slightly expand that ease and then as we breathe out we're just going to relax and let go and allow the ease to settle once again so for example if you find that your eyes feel very welcoming and you, with the in-breath, just imagine that ease spreading into your forehead and down into your face. And as you breathe out, just allow that ease to 
dissipate into the rest of the body and allow the muscles to soften and relax further. Also, if you find, for example, ease and comfort in the belly as you breathe, try to make the in-breath as full and complete and feel the energy in the belly spreading up to the chest. And then as you breathe out, just let go of all the energy and just allow that ease to suffuse into the rest of the body. If nothing right now in your body feels that soothing, let's just find a very simple phrase and repeat it in the mind with every breath. I like, uh, I love you, keep going. Hold an image of yourself as a child as you may have appeared as a child, and as you breathe in, just think, I love you. As you breathe out, keep going. Try to be the ideal, attentive, caring, empathetic caregiver for your inner representation of yourself as a child, which is still very much so present in the emotional mind. Try to make each exhalation as long as you can. Exhalations are parasympathetic. They help put the brakes on hypervigilance and threat detection. So you want the in-breath to be complete and full but you want the out-breath to be as long and smooth as possible. So we don't want any sense of pushing out the air from the lungs. We want just the idea of releasing slowly 
if you could count to four on your in-breaths, try to count to five or six on the out. Again, the longer and more complete and smooth the exhalation, the more you'll engage the natural breaks, the acetylcholine that will activate and allow you to digest food well. Allow you to sleep, allow you to settle. to be present in situations we would normally avoid. It's all a matter of self-soothing, creating a soothing internal experience. The more internally we feel relaxed, the more space we have for other people's challenges, the more space we have to tolerate disappointments and frustrations. In my work in counseling, while I listen to others, I keep my belly soft and my out-breaths really long so that I can be present for others. If I'm tense and tight, then I'll either become anxious and need to interject or I'll float away in thoughts.
So now I'd like you to, or I'd invite you to, if you like, we'll try two of the secure visualization strategies. So imagine that right now in your mind, you could travel back in time to a period of your childhood that you can remember, wasn't too early, where you felt a deficit of care, of a soothing presence that was on your side, that was most interested in you and your feeling safe and understood anytime and try to visualize the place that you most associate with this period it could be a bedroom a living room or an area that you went when you felt most alone And then try to conjure an individual who would be most capable of meeting the needs. And again, those four needs of being someone being available, someone who is emotionally attentive and aware of how you feel, someone who is soothing if you feel hurt or frustrated or disappointed or overwhelmed. But most importantly, also someone who just delights in you, who would smile Try not to base this figure on, of course, any of your actual caregivers or anyone who is unreliable. It can be entirely based on fiction, fantasy. It could be based on imaginary figures, the Buddha or any other religious spiritual figure. It could be based on famous individuals. People have used Mr. Rogers, an American figure, children's TV host. It could be any figure, just a figure who would be there who would sit with you, stay, and would help you understand and feel attended to when you felt most alone in the world.
and just if it's difficult, just keep trying. It could be even an angelic deva figure from Buddhism. But just what would it be like to be in the presence of someone who, when you were vulnerable, cared first and foremost about your well-being, was interested in you, and just see if you can relax and be with the feeling of being cared about without any concern that it might be taken away. For some of us, this might be very hard. And that's okay. Even if it starts difficult with daily practice, people can actually become capable of relaxing into the internal representation of care. So now I'd like you to use your mind's ability to travel through time and now imagine a future scenario where you have a figure, an individual available who's secure and whether it's a romantic relationship or friendship or whatever, quality of bond that feels right. Just imagine yourself in a comfortable environment. It could be your home or another dwelling. And in the background, you're aware that there's this figure present. You don't even have to visualize what they look like. Just imagine there's someone available, not too engulfing, someone reliable, someone who would bring you tea if you wanted something warm to drink, someone who would be soothing if you felt emotionally wounded, and someone who would be who just delights when you return home. If you have any figures that represent this, you can use them or you can just imagine what this scenario would be like and see if you can again conjure a feeling in your body. It's most important, the feeling, because that's what will guide us in the future is our feelings. See if you can conjure a feeling that's associated with care, attention, and security. 
when I've done this practice at home, I very often will put a hand on my heart center to activate the vagus nerve, which is associated with the secure experience in life, the vagus nerve is what allows us to relax and feel safe, connect with others, bond with others. So whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes and uh, <coughs> thank you for your practice and for listening to the talk.